Welcome to Thoughtful Planning, the place where real conversation, expert insight, and a touch of humor meet to turn our end-of-life uncertainties into self-assurance. I'm your co-host, Santiago, a history buff and a big kid at heart. And I'm Honey, your guide through the intricate dance of planning with care and a whole lot of warmth. Every week, we're here to turn those intimidating are-we-ready moments into confident, everything-is-under-control moments. Today's journey is one you won't want to miss. Welcome to another episode of Thoughtful Planning. I'm Honey. And I'm Santiago. Today we want you to think about a simple act that may save a life, becoming an organ donor. We might not all be eligible, but we all have the opportunity to impact so many lives. So our essential question today is, how do you think organ donation affects recipients and their families? You always have great questions, babe. And today... We're honored to have a very special conversation with Kim Perkins, who is a recipient of a pancreas. We're excited to learn and listen to her personal journey. Before we begin, remember to consult your doctor or lawyer for advice tailored to your specific situation. Let's dive in to this heartwarming discussion. Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Would you start by sharing your pre and post diagnosis journey with our listeners and then what it was like at the moment you were recommended for your pancreas transplant. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I was a high school senior going into college and noticed a few change about my about my energy level. I was young and had to have a college physical, and that came back completely normal. So I started my college journey and just thought that my fatigue and everything else was associated with burning the candle at both ends. I was sleeping after meals, extremely thirsty, you know, just diving into studying and working all the time. My senior year of college, I kind of got stopped dead in my tracks. About two weeks before graduation, I became extremely ill. I had put off a senior project that was really not like myself. And went to the doctor and had a blood sugar check. And my blood sugar was 480. A normal range is 80 to 100 for a healthy individual. And so I was in what they call diabetic ketoacidosis. And I was basically, that means is that your body is eating its muscle and fat for energy because it can't convert your meals into energy for your body to run on. So I was admitted to the intensive care unit here in my hometown and started my type 1 diabetes journey. It is thought that I was genetically predisposed to type 1 diabetes as well as maybe lost my endocrine function from a virus where my body attacked its healthy cells that provide glucose transition for energy. So I lost my beta cells, which the pancreas produces. So I was a full-blown type 1 diabetic at the age of 20, just kind of out of the blue and just kind of learned to give myself insulin injections five to six times a day, checking my blood sugar 10 times a day, changed the way I eat totally and still had no control. It was very brutal up and down road for several years. I was an uninsured college student. This is before insurance was mandatory for Americans. 
and my parents were self-employed. And so we didn't have health insurance. So I took all of my savings and paid my hospital bill and my doctor's bill and paid for insulin out of pocket until I was married a year later. And for about four or five years, was on insulin injections and tried to manage my diabetes that way and just really started a downhill slope where I found myself disconnecting from those around me because I just didn't feel good. I just wasn't doing a great job of managing it. I'm a type A personality and I joke that I was that I was diagnosed with a disease that offers you no control over anything in your life. So I just really found that I had to do something. I, w- I knew what the end game was for a type 1 diabetic. I knew that I was going to have lifelong complications early and didn't want to stay in the mental state that I was and didn't want to stay in the physical state that I was. I was using an insulin pump finally and still wasn't getting any control. So at the age of about 32, I sat my husband down and I said, If I had a different diagnosis, if I was a cancer patient or any other diagnosis, what would be our answer to this? And he said, well, we would find help. We wouldn't stop until we would fix it. And I said, well, we have to fix this. I can't continue to operate, not connecting with people, not looking people in the eye, not traveling, not doing these things that make me happy and the person who I am. So um, I began to look into other alternatives that at my diagnosis was told to me that were impossible. And so I began to look at islet cell transplants. They were experimental in Canada and in Chicago and a few other centers around the world, Baylor in Texas being one of them, and applied for all of those programs. And I was quickly denied some due to funding because the programs were being canceled and others were accepting me. And I was traveling to qualify for these programs and quickly found out because of the my BMI, which was weight gain from taking artificial insulin, was causing me to be disqualified for a type 1 trial. So I was sent home and told to look into solid organ transplant. So I went back to my endocrinologist in Atlanta, and he suggested that I try whole organ transplant there at Emory University Hospital. He suggested that I go to their transplant center, and so I called and applied and went in for an evaluation, and they evaluate everything, your physical health, your mental health, your financial health, to see if you are possibly a candidate that this would work for. And after about three weeks of evaluation and then followed by insurance approval, I was listed for transplant at Emory University Hospital. I would be one of three listed that year in 2013 in the state of Georgia for that particular kind of transplant. Usually a pancreas is paired with a kidney transplant, but my native kidneys were still pretty healthy. So they decided to go with whole organ and just do the pancreas alone. And so I changed the ringtone for Emory on my phone and we took one last vacation to Disney. And while coming out of Epcot, I received a phone call from Emory University that said that there was an organ available. We flew back to Emory University Hospital from Florida directly 
and was hospitalized that night and the organ was not viable. The deceased donor had suffered some trauma to the pancreas itself. And so I went home with no organ. After that was a listing that I had been listed for for only 10 days, which was a surprise to me. Most candidates wait five, six years for organ transplant, some longer. So I was caught off guard. Emory was caught off guard, but it was the process that I felt blessed to be a part of. And and it was a dry run on my behalf. And someone also had lost their life that weekend. So I didn't take that lightly. I was just thankful for the opportunity and the blessing that I had moved up the list so fast because organs are matched based on blood type and genetics and rejection. And also for the recipient, how many pregnancies you've had, how many blood transfusions you've had. So it's a matching criteria that's pretty intense. And and I knew that my team had that under control. So I went home and about a month later, I received a second phone call on Memorial Day weekend. And I had just come off Lake Hartwell here in South Carolina. And once again, drove to Emory overnight. And Emory is about an hour and 45 minutes from my house. And it's across the state line of South Carolina into Georgia, but it is my closest transplant center. Went in for transplant and it was a go. It was a good match. And I received a pancreas transplant after about an eight and a half hour surgery. I went into surgery with a blood sugar of about 230, which is over twice what it should be, and came out with a perfect reading of 100, which I had not seen in years on my blood sugar monitor. So the pancreas was working. It had not clotted off. It had not rejected. I had a pretty great recovery at Emory. I was discharged after about five days to the transplant house where, where I stayed for another two weeks doing follow-up labs and then continued with those labs over several years. And now I'm happy to say that I am pancreas transplanted and it's been successful for the last 10 years. So I just celebrated my 10 year anniversary of insulin free treatment for diabetes in June. So I'm very, very thankful. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) 10 years. I myself am out from cancer. It's been seven years. And it's a good feeling. It's a great feeling when that anniversary mm-hmm. comes by and it and you're just like, Oh, another year. Oh, yes, another year. Yes. You feel so blessed. Yes. Yep. Did you do something fun at that ten year mark? Or do you do something fun every time? Yes, ma'am. I do something fun every year. Oh, good. A a little side note. About three years out of my transplant, I met my donor family. So my transplant anniversary is June first, but my donor's deceased anniversary is the day before that. So I am thankful for that because it allows me a day to celebrate and then also a day with his family to celebrate his life. He was a 16-year-old high school student. His sister was graduating that day. He died in a swimming accident. So he was able to donate everything but his lungs. His mother and I are really great friends. That was our criteria from the beginning, that we be friends, that this organ is my organ, and that I am to live life fully with it. 
And I would think he would want me to do the same. And so she and I spent a great deal of time together and we try to do something every Memorial Day weekend to celebrate his life. And then, of course, I celebrate every day with not being chained to the diabetic regimen that I was before. So tell us, what is your life like now? Do you have any limitations? I take immunosuppressants every day. So without those immunosuppressants, my immune system would recognize that organ as something that's not native to my body. And I would reject that organ and go back to being a type 1 diabetic. So I actually have two pancreas. I have my one that doesn't work that's beautiful. It just lays there. And then I have his that works perfectly and provides me with everything I need. And so I take prednisone, I take tacrolimus, and I take Celsep. And those are all derivatives to just kind of take my body and suppress that immune system to where if anything enters my system that's foreign, including that organ itself, that I my body doesn't react with an overreaction and take out that particular organ and just cause my body to cellularly reject that organ. So I take those medicines are pretty tough. They're a long haul of putting your body through an immune suppression state for years and years and years. It's not somewhere you want to be. Our number one health risk is skin cancer. We don't have the ability to fight off abnormal cells because we don't want our body to do that. So we're constantly monitored for those things. So you're trading off one for the other. But in my situation, the way type one diabetes and the high blood sugars were attacking my body, I felt like and my physicians felt like that was the best course of treatment. Yeah. In our research, we were looking up, and I'm a history dude, so I, I love mm-hmm. doing research and looking. There were so many myths and misconceptions out there about organ donation. Could you share and maybe you know share something you thought and then address that misconception? Absolutely. So one of the ones I hear quite frequently is the misconception that If you go to the hospital as a registered donor, the interest would be that they would want to procure your organs instead of save you. So that's something that everybody fears, like not to go ahead and register as an organ donor because they're scared that that physician will have that interest instead of their own at heart. And the best way to address that is physicians and medical personnel take an oath to take care of the patient in front of them. They don't know of me and this that lives across the country that needs a pancreas. No physician is going to lose a patient on behalf of me across the country that's a patient of another physician. That is not something that's orchestrated. That is not something that's known ahead of time. So your physician wants to be successful with you, his patient. He doesn't want to encourage quality of life for somebody across the country that he's never met. So that's the oath he takes. So don't ever be scared to say I'm a registered donor. In fact, the best way to combat this myth is to say I'm a donor and and I'm registered. I'm proud to be a donor and share it with everybody you know. It's important for your family and everybody around you to know that this is what you really wanted. The problem in the organ donation community right now is that people are registered and sometimes that registration doesn't trump treatment and they get buried with organs that they had wished they had donated. So 
that it's very important to share with your family. It's very important that your physicians have that ability to know that so that they can, after your proclamation of death, they can make the right avenue for you to do that one last commitment to community health. And so I wouldn't want that taken away from me as an organ donor and anyone's death, they wouldn't want that opportunity taken away if that's a decision that they have made previously. Yeah. I mean, we were actually talking about that right before we came up about that misconception. Mm -hmm. Media has done a great job about communicating how great organ donation is, but there's some misconceptions because TV is such a concise journey to explain to people. And so it's important to hear the true side of it, you know, that the matching process and that the donation process is, is one of compassion and love and it really is also very, very administratively anonymous. And it is actually a miracle to watch it all come together, considering how private it is. And so that's a huge myth. It's not something that ever happens. It's not like in the movies where the person downstairs passes and the person upstairs is in need right at that moment. Our regions and our everything has changed over the years. And so that national organization that handles listing is not in communication with the state except it anonymously. And so those communications can't be messed up. So I want to go back when you were talking about your donor. How did it work out then? you know, with the privacy and such. Okay. How so does that work out? Yeah. The way that works out is I'm allowed to write a letter to my donor family at any given time. And that letter goes to the organization that procured that organ for you. In my case at Emory, it was the chaplain at Emory. So the chaplain at Emory University Hospital received my letter and then She takes out all of the identifiers from my letter. And if his family had asked to receive communications, then that letter is sent on to the family. Some families choose not to open communication and that letter is never sent on. And some families choose to open communication and then they don't respond. I will say that my situation is probably more rare than the other alternative. We both were open to receiving communications and we met and it was a great relationship to maintain. And we figured out how to do that over the last 10 years. But not every family is open to that. And that's okay. That's I've met several donor families who say, I loved meeting you as a recipient. I just don't want to meet my loved one's recipients. And that's okay, too. There is a the whole bigger picture of a loss in this equation that is not the blessing that I have had. And it's important to understand that. But it's also, I've heard from more families than not, that without organ donation as a process for their lost loved one to have been a part of, they wouldn't have any hope that it was for anything other than loss. And so the ability to provide a different avenue to say that wasn't the end. You have a child that benefited from my son's donation to you and that legacy will continue continue we call it a ripple effect so the ripple effect from the donation that I received will trend forward for years to come and that wouldn't have been possible so that's a positive in a very negative situation where there's not very much hope so it's great to provide those families with a lot of hope 
Cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Your story is just, I'm kind of at a loss for words a little bit, just a little bit. So what message would you like to leave our listeners, especially those that might be facing a difficult journey or on the fence about considering organ donation? Yes. So you can be any age, any race, any religion. All communities support donation. And now in the last three years, it's been a huge ability to also donate if you experience a cardiac death instead of just a brain death. So it doesn't matter how you've passed or or what age you are or what religious affiliation you are. They all support organ donation. Skin and tissue. I'll tell you a short story about the importance of tissue donation. A lot of elderly folks believe that they're not viable donors and that their body is done and that, that they've passed away and that that's all that's left for them and their family. But in fact, that I know an individual and her husband had a tanker and the, the tanker's contents leaked down on his skin during a traffic accident. And he was the benefit of a tissue transplant on his face from a, a donor. You can have donation 98 years, 100 years old at death. All of those donations are possible. So I want people to understand that we're out here living healthy, full lives. We're not laid in a hospital somewhere where we're just going to live another three months because of your donation. We're out here living healthy, full lives. My child was a first grader when I received my pancreas transplant, and I didn't want to live another month. And he just got accepted to college on Friday. So these are things that I've been allowed to see that I wouldn't have been allowed to see had I not been part of this community and someone's generous donation. So please let the medical professionals decide if your body is viable for transplant. All you have to do is sign up. You can go on your health app on your iPhone or you can go to donatelife.net and specify everything, all the details, and then share with your family what you want to do after you pass. You don't have to die from a tragic accident to be an organ donor anymore. That is, you don't have to be young. You don't have to be, you know, there are no stipulations anymore. It's a wide open world that we watch these Super Bowls and these college football games and the stadiums are full of people What if you could wipe out a need for an entire stadium full of people just by taking five minutes to sign up for something that isn't going to make a difference in your lifetime, but it certainly will for those that are left behind? Living donation as well. 85% of the people on the wait list of over 100,000, so 85,000 people or more are waiting on a kidney. That's the organ we can donate while we're still alive. So we don't need but one kidney. Living kidney donation is one of the biggest gifts you can do. And it's covered by all insurance providers now. Almost all organizations allow you time off to do it. If you think you've met every incredible person in the world, meet a living kidney donor because they will blow your mind. So there's no stipulation to being a donor. And there's life after donation for us recipients. So it's important. It's important to give that gift and give that hope back to your family that you've left behind. Because I promise you, I've never met a family who was hopeless after organ donation. Because 
even the thought, even if they hadn't met their donors, they had the, the recipients, they've had the thought afterwards of that there's somebody out there that's living a better quality life because of the gift that my loved one gave them. So sign up, sign up. It doesn't matter. Let the let the professionals decide if, if you have something viable to give because we don't have to decide that, that they do that. And I promise they will make it worth somebody's while to do that. So sign up, talk to your family about it. Don't be worried. I promise it's not a TV show or a, it's actual, it's real life, you know, so. Well. You think you, that she really wants people to sign up? <laughs> I've already signed up there. So have I. I mean, we've both signed up. So, but my time was 30 something days. That's not normal. So when I was blessed with that particular outcome, my passion was that I could get other people to sign up so that other people could wait 35 days, you know, instead of five years. Well, instead of passing away without ever getting a transplant. People are passing away daily and annually because they weren't given a transplant and they're laying beside someone who didn't donate when they pass away as well. And it just doesn't make sense in my mind. And so I want it to make sense in a perfect world. I want it to make sense. And and I think that increasing the registry so that there's more donors will decrease the need for a wait list at all. Yes. yes. And that's what you know, with us having this podcast, Thoughtful Planning, you know, we want people to be able to think about these things, again, when they're clear of mind, they have clarity, they can ask these questions. So they they can be prepared, if that's a choice that they want to make, and they share it with their family, like you're saying. That's right. Yeah, we're big on having a conversation with your family about your, what you want to do. Because when it's too late, guess what? It's too late. Right. And for my dad, he didn't have the donor stuff and he was left on the machines too long. So his, his organs were actually shutting down. Right. They, he did donate his corneas, which probably provided somebody's eyesight that they hadn't had in a bit. So, which is. So, what happens in that situation? So, a gift from your father from the organ donation community is one of the first cornea recipients I met. Her dog scratched her in her eye. He jumped up and scratched her on the eye and she went blind in that eye and she received a cornea transplant. She's not blind anymore. She runs marathons every day. Wow. And so those are gifts back to people like you from your father, from the donation of his cornea that organ donation provides. Yes. Wow. That's awesome. That's a great story. Thank you. So as we conclude this heartfelt episode, We want to express our deepest gratitude to you, Kim, for joining us and sharing your remarkable story. Uh, Your experiences as an organ transplant recipient highlight the incredible importance and positive impact of organ donation. Uh, To our listeners, we hope this episode has moved you and offered a deeper understanding of this life-saving act. Your decision to become an organ donor can create a legacy of hope and life for others. So, Kim, can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you before we wrap up? Absolutely. So I have a full-time job. I do other things elsewhere, but this is my passion. So you can reach out to me personally. If you're a recipient, a donor family, or just interested in more about organ donation, you can find me on Facebook. I'm Kim Perkins79 on any of the social media platforms. Okay, fantastic. And I'm so glad that 
you were able to talk to us today. This has been an amazing story, an amazing episode. So, uh, listeners, what I want to do now is circle back to our essential question. How do you think organ donation affects the recipients and your families? And hopefully Kim was able to impact your answer to that. So I actually withheld some information from our listeners to start with because I didn't want to skew what they were thinking. But in our research, according to the Health Resource and Service Administration, on average, there's 103,327 people waiting for transplant. And 17 of them aren't going to make it till tomorrow. Think about that, listeners. That's over 6,200 folks who die annually waiting for a transplant. If you donate, you could save eight lives by giving your heart, your kidney, your lungs, pancreas, intestines. And then you can enhance over 75 others by giving your corneas, your eyes, your skin, your bones, your heart valves, your veins, your tendons. It's just so many people that one 10-minute sitting in front of a computer, you could impact you know, close to 100 people's lives. Wow. That's incredible data. And if you're inspired to learn more or considering becoming an organ donor, we encourage you to investigate the resources available in your state. And we'll include the links in the show notes. You can also go to www.organdonor.gov slash sign hyphen up. And remember to let your family know your wishes regarding organ donation. Until our next episode, remember every chapter you write today shapes your legacy tomorrow. Thank you for joining us at Thoughtful Planning. And just like the vibrant hues of a setting sun, we're wrapping up another episode of Thoughtful Planning. Every shared story and insight is a step closer to turning uncertainty into celebrations of preparedness. Absolutely. And to our listeners, remember that every surprise that comes our way is an opportunity to grow, adapt, and learn. Stay tuned for more stories, expert insight, and of course, a touch of wit in our next episode. We're not just co-hosts, we're fellow travelers on this journey. For more information on additional resources, which will help you take the next step in planning, look for the link in the show notes for our membership. Join us next time for another episode of Thoughtful Planning. Until then, keep living, laughing, and loving every moment.